0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, September 9th, we are studying Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. After prophesying against several foreign nations, Zephaniah now turns to speak against the rebellious, the defiled, and the oppressing city. But what city is this? Today's text will unpack that answer and more. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jacob Dandy. Pastor Dandy serves at Zion Lutheran Church and School in Tarabella, California. Pastor Dandy, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: It's a pleasure to be speaking with you.
0: As we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context. We've read two chapters of Zephaniah so far. What do we need to remember about the prophet, his ministry, and any of that context going into chapter 3 this morning?
1: Yeah, so um, this is Zephaniah's prophetic message at the time of King Josiah in Jerusalem. Um, if we remember uh, King Josiah, he's he's the, the king who... Uh, wants to renovate the temple of the Lord, and in that process, they recover the book of the law. Um, uh, the, the book is reintroduced, uh, the book of the law is reintroduced to the people of God. Uh, Josiah takes this to heart um, and brings about reforms in the, the kingdom of Judah. Um, but in the midst of it, we have Zephaniah declaring God's jo- judgment against both Judah and the, the nations that surround them. Uh, uh, If we remember back in chapter 1, we see Zephaniah describing God's judgment against the creation itself and how that judgment also then begins in Jerusalem. He he names the sin of Jerusalem, saying that he'll sweep away the remnants of Baal. So we, we see that in the midst of Josiah's reforms that flow from the recovery of the book of the law Uh, There is still a remnant of the worship of Baal Baal, that never ceases from the land. Um, uh, The Lord says that the people's hearts are not cleansed of their idolatry uh, as the people still continue to gather on rooftops to praise the host of heaven or or worship the stars in the sky or to swear to the Lord. But in their hearts, they swear uh, by idols, Milcom or something along those lines, right? And so the Lord says that in this he's going to sweep away Jerusalem uh, despite the reforms of Josiah because the hearts of the people are still far from the Lord. He declares the coming day of the Lord, which becomes a a, uh, a theme not just in the prophets, but um, in the New Testament as well. Um, we'll talk about that maybe a little bit later, um, uh, where God has his reckoning against double-minded unbelief. But uh, uh, I would really say if I were to summarize um, maybe the, the theme of the book of Zephaniah, it would be uh, that it's a warning against the hardness of heart to God's word. Um, And so we see God call a faithful remnant uh, from Judah to gather in repentance before the day of the Lord. Uh, And then prior to this section, we have God declaring declaring oracles against the nations for their sin, uh, as he says that he will actually plunder these nations for his remnant right uh, and so just in context we've had uh, judgment against the creation uh, for hardness of heart to the word of God against Jerusalem uh, against the nations and uh, I believe in this section now when we get into chapter three it's coming back around to Jerusalem
0: well and that that's I think the the question that's going to be important because chapter three starts like this woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. Right at the end of chapter two, the main city that's in view is Nineveh, and so <clears throat> now that we hear about you know rebellious, defiled, oppressing city, the question for us as readers today and for Zephaniah's hearers then is well, what what city are we talking about? So let's let's start talking about that. What's the answer to that question? You think, Pastor Dandy?
1: Well, I I, th- I think the the context kind of opens things up as we as we keep reading, uh, um, the woe to her who is a rebellious and defiled, oppressing city. Um, you know, maybe the the, the hero will say, "Oh, Nineveh, right? Yeah, go get him, God, right? Uh, get him, uh, Zephaniah." But then it says, "She listens to no voice, she accepts no correction, she doesn't trust in the Lord, and she does not draw near to her God, right?" Uh, And so all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of like uh, uh, on a Sunday sermon when the pastor is preaching the law um, and uh, maybe you you hear the law more and more. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, he's talking about you. Right. Um, uh, uh, You say, oh, I'm doing that. Um, uh, So where. Wait, what city is the God of that city, the Lord? What city is to draw near to God? And then then you start seeing some of the um, uh, accusations against the city in verses 3 and 4 and the, the inhabitants of the city and the leaders of the city. Um, and all of a sudden you come to this conclusion uh, that the inhabitants of Jerusalem that were listening to this prophetic message from Zephaniah um, wouldn't be able to escape the reality, oh, this is about us. Right. Um, he's coming back to what he was saying in chapter one. He's declaring God's judgment against us once again. Mm. Right.
0: Right, it's. I mean, it's just as a. It's a reminder of of the Lord preaches this way in in many cases. The prophet Amos does this at the beginning of his <clears throat> book, where he he lays out oracles against several foreign nations, and then at the end, when maybe Israel and Judah think, "Oh, we're okay," that's when the hammer drops on them. Or, or in terms of an individual, a good example would be what the prophet Nathan does in the story he tells to King David when he confronts David over his adultery and his murder, and, and you know the way Nathan crafts that story so that David. David ends up condemning himself. It's a similar move with the prophet Zephaniah here. He's again laid out those oracles against the nations. And now, oh yes, you too, Jerusalem, remember that you are not exempt. Now, in terms of Jerusalem being this rebellious, defiled, depressing city, when should we understand this to take place? Is it a repeat of what we have? Chapter one, is there maybe a bit more timeless nature to this message? What do you think? Um,
1: yes. Um, so, uh, I, I think this works on on several different levels. Um, of course, we can we can take this directly in the context of this being the people in the time of King Josiah. Right. That um, while King Josiah is striving to make these liturgical reforms, uh, maybe the the priesthood is still corrupted. The people still don't want to hear this recovery of the book of the law. They don't want to hear the words of the prophets. Um, uh, And so this can be an indictment against the people of Israel. There are the people of Jerusalem during the time of Josiah. Uh, Although I think Martin Luther has a really interesting take on this. Um, that that uh, can can maybe generate a little bit of thought, but also can kind of make this text just even a little bit more christological. Um, and he says that uh, as we read chapter three, this is Zephaniah prophesying to the future inhabitants of Jerusalem, those who return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. So if we remember kind of our our timeline of the Old Testament right? We have Josiah who is the King of Jerusalem towards the end of, uh, its time as the monarchy there. Um, and then shortly, very quickly after Josiah, just one generation later, um, we see that, uh, they return to to their idolatry, um, and that, uh, um, Babylon comes in, uh, and within the next 20 some odd years, Jerusalem is, uh, brought into captivity, right? Uh, after that, we, we have the fall of the Babylonian Empire as the uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem are in captivity during the reign of King Cyrus. They are given permission to return to Jerusalem. Uh, and Luther is actually saying that this, this kind of fits with uh, a warning uh, given to those returners from the exile, And so uh, he kind of he puts it together um, from two different areas. First, he says, well, this judgment against Jerusalem is repeated from chapter one, which that could just be emphasis. But then also Luther, Luther sees the descriptions of the rulers, um and the leaders of uh jerusalem so the religious elite the the scribes and the pharisees uh the priesthood um and and the first five verses of this uh chapter is spot on with the rulers and the leaders that we encounter in the four gospels right um and so That even just broadens the idea there of the hardness of the heart of the people and all of these other things that this and this actually will make chapter or chapter three, verse eight, where we we see about the coming day of the Lord even more significant as verse eight ends up looking a lot like Christ. That's the gathering of all the nations of the earth to suffer God's divine judgment against sin. That actually takes place in jesus right it, it uh, flows from what we see uh in the gospel declaration that comes in the rest of this chapter too um as as god's judgment is poured out god makes for himself a new people right he makes for himself a new nation and so as we read this we can read this on a couple of levels we can read this as uh First, uh, God's word of prophecy to the people in Josiah's day as they're hardening their hearts to the recovery of the book of the law and the words of the prophets, which I think we need to definitely take that seriously. But we also then can look at this applying to generations down the road as um, God's word of judgment spoken to uh, um, the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the time of Christ. Uh, because then they don't just harden their hearts to the word of God's law, but they actually harden themselves to God's word made flesh. Um, they they harden their hearts to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. Christ. Mm-hmm. And then I think we could even um, uh, say that this is um, even more timeless than that, that we could apply that to the hardness of heart that we experience in our day. Um, that um, uh, there will be uh, those among us, even those among our own congregations, that will harden ourselves to God's word of law, but also then harden ourselves to God's word of comfort in the gospel. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I like I like that suggestion from Luther. I, I I will be honest that I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure that I would have thought about it like that myself. And I, I'm willing mm-hmm. to 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 entertain the idea. I'm not sure if that's precisely what Zephaniah had in mind. I suppose I I can't really know that, but I do think that, that he's certainly right in applying it to what he sees in the time mm-hmm. of Christ, you know, that's described for us in the Gospels. And I, I do think, I mean, that's just true of, of not only the prophet Zephaniah, but God's word in general, how we can see, yeah. you know, how the word that was preached, say 600, 700 years before Christ ends up being quite applicable to the time of Christ. And mm-hmm. as you said, still to us today. A- and in this text, you know, we're going to see that applicability not only to the people sitting in the pews, but to the pastors who are doing the preaching. I mean, there's, there's a word of warning here to all of us, the people of Zephaniah's day, the people of Christ's day, and the people of ours as well. So let's go ahead and read. We're in Zephaniah chapter three. We're beginning at verse one. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins." I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. That is Zephaniah 3 verses 1 to 8, our text for today. Pastor Danny, we've talked a little bit about verses one and two and introducing this text already that the rebellious, defiled, oppressing city is Jerusalem. How how do I mean we've made that identification? What sins does the Lord point out particularly in these first two verses?
1: Yeah. Um, well, and and I, I would say this really kind of introduces maybe the theme of the Uh, This section and that that really is a hardness, uh, the hardening of the heart to God's word. Right. Um, God's chief criticism against Jerusalem is they do not draw near to him. They don't trust him or listen to him. They don't uh, uh, take correction or comfort from his word. And that's why God says that they are rebellious, defiled. And then um, he says that they are from that oppressive, right? Um, and and so as we think about this, you know, the hardening of the heart to God's word, right, uh, the hardening of the heart to God's word would uh, actually cause us to um, harden our hearts to our vocations, harden our hearts to love um in a biblical sense of what love is right um it would cause us to harden our hearts to a, a great deal of things and so well, we, we think about that maybe in terms of josiah's day here we do have the recovery of the book of the law and then we also have that uh josiah is uh or sorry not uh, uh josiah has multiple prophets prophesying in his day we have um uh we have jeremiah the prophet who's kind of a contemporary uh of of these folks uh um once again declaring this uh word from god but then we here have zephaniah and so we see in josiah's day that they have the the words of the prophets and now they have the the words of the book of the law now the words of moses and and they aren't hearing it um, they refuse to be corrected, that their their hearts are still distant from the Lord. Um, and then if we, we kind of take Luther's suggestion and then apply this to um, those who have returned from the captivity, apply this to those who are living in the times of the Gospels, we see once again that this hardening of heart um, drives people out from their vocation as well, right? And so um, apart from... Uh, Faithfulness to God's word, uh, apart from uh uh the the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, um, our vocations are quickly and easily defiled. And um uh, maybe one of the examples that we can see of that in the New Testament would be the priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, right? Um they they were appointed uh to be uh and, and given this role as the religious leaders of the people of Israel. Um, uh, but we, we see very quickly that that, that office isn't derived from uh, the joy of God's word, uh, isn't derived from a love of God's word, but it's, it it flows from something else. It flows from uh, maybe simple flesh. This is what Jesus says about the, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? He says in Matthew 23, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and so do whatever uh, and observe whatever they tell you. But not the works they do for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their little finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in the people's faces for You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting others, right? And so, we we see a couple of things kind of oddly uh, come out here, that where there's this hardness of heart to God's word, or in this context, a hardness of heart to God's word of the gospel, um, uh, we see that there's also a um, perversion or a pollution of vocation. Right? And so you can see that the those in Josiah's day while Josiah is very zealous for the word, um, uh, those serving under him and alongside him in the kingdom of Jerusalem are not. Um, we see this in Jesus's day where where we have Christ himself made flesh uh, before them uh, and yet uh, we have these people who are in these offices of teacher and scribe and priest uh, but what happens? Uh, they use their offices that gain for themselves notoriety, wealth, and honor. Uh, and so um, uh, we see this kind of reality that that takes place here, that where the heart does not accept correction from the Lord, where, where the heart is not humbled and softened before the Lord and his word, um, there's, A, no faith. Um, there's no desire to draw near to the gifts and the grace of God. But then also there's a defilement of vocation um, uh, that serves as maybe a symptom of of what's being lost here.
0: Mm-hmm. Pastor Dandy, you, you've helped me connect some dots on, in this text with some things that I had noticed with the way you're talking here about that. this, to, to repeat it, the hardness of heart to the word leads to this defilement or pollution of vocation. One of the, one of the things that stood out to me reading through this text in preparation for our conversation was particularly in verse two. I hear a lot of echoes of the book of Proverbs. So, you know, Mm -hmm. listening to no voice and accepting no correction, that's repeated several times in the book of Proverbs as a foolish way, right? To not listen mm-hmm. to wisdom, to not accept correction. That's the way of the fool. The way of the wisdom is to receive those things as they are intended. And then that, you know, that third line in verse two, she does not trust in the Lord. I mean, the theme of Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And I think the way yeah. that you've, you've laid it out here, you know, that the hardness part to the word goes hand in hand with the defilement of vocation fits in perfectly with the book of Proverbs. Because, you know, on the one hand, you can read through Proverbs and get a lot of, you know, nuggets of wisdom, like, how should I live with my wife? Or how should I raise my kids? Or, you know, when when someone gives me advice, what do I do with it, right? There's all those very practical ways of, of reading the book of Proverbs, and we're right to receive those in those practical ways. But they go hand in hand with that fear of the Lord, that listening to his word and not having hardness of heart. And I I think, I mean, as you were talking, that really kind of connected some dots for me as to why the language of Proverbs might be echoed here and how those things go together. That when we see defilement of vocation, there's a lack of fear of the Lord, lack of trust in the Lord. But where that trust in the Lord and his word is there, then the vocation starts to follow. I mean, and I think Proverbs does that so well. I think Zephaniah's got that same foundation here.
1: hmm I, I think you're right. Um, and uh, that's a great connection between the book of Proverbs, where, where which, you know, that's really a, a book about uh, the fear of the Lord, wisdom, uh, vocation, but then also uh, the heart of wisdom, which, uh, you know, it, it just continually drives us to the wisdom of the Lord, which is Christ, right? Um, and so I think that's, that's, that's a really great connection to make.
0: Well, and again, you, you, you really helped me make it there as you were talking. So we've got just a couple of minutes before our, our break. So let's, let's start into verses three and four, where we do start to see how these vocations were defiled. Let, let's start mm-hmm. with the, the officials, the judges, kind of the, I mean, I guess the rulers of the people, the civil rulers is what seems to be in mind there in verse three
1: yeah so her officials within her are roaring lions and her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning right and so here we have um uh perhaps maybe the the civil leaders of the uh people of jerusalem and judah uh and they're they're described uh as predators right um and predators that are ravenous right you you think about um a a roaring lion and an evening wolf uh uh you you see that what do they do to their prey well they, they consume it um they 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 consume it for themselves they eat it right um and this this kind of um this image once again of vocation uh, and love um, under God's word is is once again shifted to those who are supposed to have this vocation of loving God's people by making sound judgments, by um, uh, 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 serving with honesty, um, by um Uh, uh, upholding the law and and especially in the kingdom of Judea or Judah um, and the people of Jerusalem upholding God's word in a public and practical sense and as the people of God live their day-to-day lives what are they doing they're they're exercising their office as an abuse of the people God has called them to serve Um, uh, they consume every bit of their prey Uh, They consume the people in injustice. Right. Uh, And they're not committed to their office as a service of love toward God and neighbor, but as a means to empower and enrich themselves. Right. Um, You know, and I'm sure you could squeeze in some sort of joke about how all politicians are kind of crooked and rotten. Uh, But uh, you you see that, um, you know, the uh, and you also maybe can uh, think about how um, uh, the man doesn't defile the uh, office, but sometimes the office defiles the man or absolute power uh, corrupts absolutely. You know, you've got those kind of uh, pithy sayings there um, that are are maybe applicable to this way, what's going on here. Um, but we see that this continual reality of a fallen world is, is kind of taking place in the midst of the people of God. Um, that, that those who are to be ruling, um, are corrupted, uh, to the point where they, uh, um, Uh, they do not serve in their office as a vocation from God, but they serve in their office as um, a means to gratify their selfish desires, right? And so uh, who suffers under that but but the people they've been called to
0: serve. Um, Let's let's take our break there, Pastor Dandy, and consider some examples on the other side. You're listening to Sharper Iron. We're talking Zephaniah 3 with Pastor Jacob Dandy, and we'll be right back. Please stick around. I'm not the one Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, September 9th. We are studying Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 to 8 with Pastor Jacob Dandy. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church and school in Terabella, California. Pastor Dandy, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 3 and 4, these various officials, judges, prophets, priests, these various offices within the people of God who are abusing their office. Instead of using those offices to serve, Their doing it for themselves. And we were talking about particularly the civil leaders. I'm sure we can get into the religious leaders that are mentioned in verse four as well. And then to begin to think of some examples of that we can see, you know, in the days of Josiah and Zephaniah in the days of Jesus. And then especially for us today, how do we take these verses and use them to examine our own lives for the types of sins that are described here?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, You know, first of all, maybe we can think of, uh, you know, just in terms of uh, uh, maybe the scandal of this uh, in Josiah's day. Well, first of all, you have a king who is striving to reform the nation. Right. Um, And and we see that um, the officials in Josiah's day, they've been warned. Right. Um, But uh, they uh, they end up imitating the nations around them. Uh, which maybe, maybe, you know, God's irony in all of this, they, they do so much imitating of the nations around them that they end up being conquered by the nations around them, which, you know, um, uh, God's, God's always very multi-layered in how he calls us to repentance. But th- these are ones who have been warned and called to repentance by the prophets, by the recovery of the book of the law. Um, but what are they doing? They're despising it in their hearts. Uh, and then, if we kind of go beyond that, and just the civil leaders uh, in the in the New Testament, um, we think about the Herods, right? If we follow kind of Luther's logic, um, the the Herods were tyrants, right? We we read uh, um, the book of Matthew about how uh, King Herod um, desired to uh, kill Christ at, um, uh, just shortly after his birth. Um, uh, we have the whole episode of the uh, uh, wise men coming in and. Uh, him trying to use the wise men to track down Christ, uh, and then we have the slaughter of the Holy Innocents in Bethlehem, um, and, and that tyranny certainly goes beyond just uh, the birth of Jesus. We we see this this in the whole kind of Herodian dynasty uh, that that comes out from this. That these these were tyrannical dictators who did not use their office uh, for um, uh, the godly benefit of the people, but they, they, you really used it to build palaces for themselves enrich themselves and, um, uh, gain power for themselves. And, you know, um, I, you know, I don't want to get too much into the, the politics and this thing, but we can see that in our society as well, that very often we, we have many politicians who, uh, enter into their, um, uh, elected positions or appointed positions, uh, Um, Not for the the service of God and country, but very often for um, uh, their own personal benefit. Uh, And and these are things we need to remember and we need to be um, uh, humbled as we address and think about and just in terms of how we view uh, the the atmosphere of the country around us. But then also how we view ourselves and as we uh, often are put into positions of authority over others. That, that as God grants authority, God grants that authority from above, and he grants that authority out of love for his creation. Um, and here we see that that is, it is flipped upside down. Um, that uh, it's 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 not love for God's creation and His creatures and His holy people, uh, but it's it's love of self that often drives uh, a lot of the movements of of uh, and the actions of the the uh, leaders of Jerusalem uh, and and really leaders of the nations uh, since the beginning, really, um, as we see that in the world, this perennial problem of uh, selfish leadership and selfish rulers and people bearing authority for uh, personal gain.
0: As you're talking about God's gift of authority, I I mean, I think you're spot on that that gets abused among us all the time. I think one Mm -hmm. of the the helpful places to turn in Scripture to, to Jesus' words to his disciples, I think it's in Matthew 20 and Mark 10, where they're arguing about who's the greatest among them. And, and Jesus tells them, you know, what does it mean to be great as a Christian? It means to be one who serves. And I really think that that's a helpful way to think about authority, that when God gives authority, it is not so that I can lord it over those who are under my authority, but rather so that I can serve those who are under my authority. Because when I think I just get to lord it over others, that's when I think I would fall into this temptation of using that authority for my own benefit, Rather when I recognize that authority as one to serve, that, that God has given me this position, not for my benefit, but for the benefit of others, then I'm much more likely to keep that, that correct attitude, one that is not looking out for what I can benefit, but rather one that looks out for, you know, I mean, for example, as a father, I've been given mm-hmm. children so that I can serve them. Now, I mean that that does involve giving them commands and having, you know, teaching them to obey and honor, but it is a matter of serving them, not just making them do whatever I want or as a pastor or any other position of authority. It's always one not to make other people do what I want them to do, but rather to be that, that conduit through which God serves them with ultimately with his gifts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that's, that's why God grants authority. Um, and you know, Um, We we see that then expand here in the later verses um, as we get into the the priest and the prophets uh, of Jerusalem as God's kind of declaring this. He says that the prophets are fickle and treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy and they do violence to the law. Right. Um, And so we we can see that. uh, that the, the prophets are fickle and treacherous, right? Um, and so what, what does that mean? Maybe that makes you think of, uh, uh, um, uh, the warning against false teachers that Paul gives to Timothy, that, uh, there will be those who would, uh, go out to tickle the ears, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that there are those who will deceive through false teaching, um, that they'll, they'll kind of, um, uh, maybe go, uh, about with, the uh, um, sticking their their uh, finger into the wind and testing the waters and then seeing what's okay to teach right um, and that certainly can be of use of the preaching office right uh, what are what are God's prophets and and uh, now in the New Testament God's pastors and preachers to do well there's a preach God's Word right um, we see that the priests pollute their vi- office and do violence against the people um, uh, um, and that, that can mean a number of things, but certainly that they can pollute their office and um, uh, maybe follow after the, the sons of Eli in the book of 1 Samuel, where they take the, the fatty portions for themselves rather than having them offered to the Lord, um, uh, abusing the worship of God for their own enrichment. right? And, and we can definitely see this in the New Testament. right? Um, as uh, um, once again, uh, we, we can think about even the trial of Christ. Um, uh, as he's brought before the Sanhedrin. Um, uh, uh, here we have he, have God in the flesh placed before them. Um, and, and what do they do? Um, they, they conclude that he must die. Right. Uh, they conclude that he must be thrown to the cross, that he must be put to an end. Uh, and so w- we see this this once again, this perennial problem uh, and, and certainly um, it can manifest itself today um, as there is really often a temptation um, for pastors um, in the church to neglect their calling. Right. Um, uh, uh, we see this maybe in Ephesians four, as St. Paul says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Uh, But then we see no longer children who are tossed and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Right. And so here, you know, Paul gives this wonderful um, uh, description of what the preaching ministry is. It's it's an equipping of the saints. Um, It's a building up of the body of the Christ, body of Christ. It's um, uh, uh, attaining unity of faith and knowledge of the son of God. It's it's to um, bring the church into maturity. Um, uh, in the fullness of Christ so that we aren't tossed to and fro by the waves of every wind of doctrine uh, and human coming and crafty schemes of the devil. Right. But that we are we are held fast in this this beautiful, uh, um, uh, wonderful word of God that brings us life and salvation and. Um, But there's always this temptation for pastors, even in our day, uh, especially in our day, to make abuse of this office, um, either to enrich themselves or to build themselves up for popularity, to maybe neglect one teaching of Scripture here and there because they know, oh, well, this wouldn't make me popular with the people or this might offend somebody, Um, not to make a call. Um, To that uh, delinquent member in the church who hasn't been around for a long time, who really probably should be reached out to or um, uh, or because it might uh, 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 ruffle some feathers or, you know, there's there's these these many, many different examples that we can come to um, to see that, you know, God God calls us to a very particular vocation and office and service that is edifying and beautiful for the church. But when it's neglected, it's harmful and the people of God are are um, made into once again children who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, uh, where where God's prophets and priests in the time of Josiah and the time of Christ and even in our day, were called to um, build up the body of Christ to maturity uh, and strength.
0: Hmm. And so, oh, I'll uh, just say,
1: and word cer- yeah, go ahead.
0: certainly, certainly a lot of a lot of material there in three and four for us to examine our lives and, and plenty of room for repentance to see the ways that we've misused the offices that God has given us, the ways that we've not fulfilled the duties that he's placed upon us, sought our own self desires rather than serving those who are under us. Now, verses three and four in, in the unfaithfulness of these leaders, stand in great contrast to verse five where the prophet zephaniah emphasizes the faithfulness of the lord so help us to see Mm -hmm. what is the prophet telling us about the lord in verse five
1: yeah so this is this is really really beautiful um that we we have officials and teachers and prophets and priests uh and they're in the midst of the city and what are they doing they're abusing their vocation they're abusing their office they're they're acting uh unrighteously but then we have who else is within the city we have her officials within her um, and all those leaders but who else is within the city and that is the lord and the lord doesn't do this injustice every morning he shows forth his justice each dawn uh he does not fail right Uh, and so we have this contrast of the lord who is in the midst of jerusalem as well right the lord who is in the midst of his people uh, uh, and and what do we see? He's just as imminent. He's just as much there. God says that he's not like these fallen princes. He's not like these fallen priests and prophets. Um, and he describes himself being imminent. He's standing in the midst of the city. Well, he can see them. He speaks to them. And and really, this is a this is a beautiful. Um, uh, Christological reality that Christ is imminent right God is imminent with his people um, uh, and so if we think about this maybe in the context of uh, uh, Josiah God is in Jerusalem he's dwelling in his holy temple he's 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 ruling from the mercy seat right um, he's there um, uh, he's there also speaking through his prophets he's speaking through his book of the law um uh, he's speaking his words of righteousness and he's doing all the things he has promised to do in and through these things um uh and you know the the there's there's dawn and there's evening every day and that is the the lord's work and the lord's doing right mm. um but also then we can think about this in terms of the incarnation right remember that that jesus is our great emmanuel jesus is our our god with us Um, And and he cannot, this cannot be ignored. Jesus, what does he do? He stands in Jerusalem. Uh, He doesn't, and and really as he stands there, he doesn't fail in being the righteousness of God, right? Um, Jesus comes to Jerusalem and is the righteousness of God. He fulfills the word of the Lord. He fulfills the word of the law. Um, He does all that God would have man do perfectly and completely, and yet we see that um, at the end of verse five, what happens? Uh, and we see that the unjust knows no shame, right? Um, it, it's it's one of those things when you think um, of somebody being shameless, it, it means that they they don't mind having um, their uh, um, sin uh, um, shown out before the world, right? Well, the unjust don't mind the fact that God is standing in their midst, and actually they, um, uh, they, they're they almost proud of their sin, right? Um, may, maybe we can think about people being proud of their sin a little bit, but we see that as, as Christ is in the midst of the city of Jerusalem, what do they do? They have no shame as he stands in their midst, and Christ is profaned by men. Mm. Uh, Martin Luther, in commenting on this verse, he says, this is the sins of the prophet." That no matter how much wickedness may rule when Christ comes, no matter how much the Pharisees are going to blaspheme against the true righteousness, which uh, which he will teach, and no matter how much they're going to despise it as worthless, yet what happens? Christ continues to stand, and he brings forth his own righteousness as a light. His case against the wicked will continue safely. You see, nothing will help them because they want to repress the righteousness of Christ by joining forces against it, yet Christ Jesus crushes it. He will move his own case forward to great glory, right? And so at verse five here at the ending, uh, at verse five, well, the whole verse really, we see that yes, there's uh, unrighteousness all throughout the city, it seems to permeate everything. Um, There's this um, pollution and uh, um, defilement of vocation, yet God is righteous, God does not do injustice. God is present with his people, and God will continue um, uh, to act in his righteous way. God will continue uh, to act as the Lord over the people of Israel. God will continue to do justice. Um, God will continue to show mercy. Um, God will continue to be and to do what he's promised to, to do. Um, and we see that really come together in Christ himself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, these, these words in verse five, where the Lord being there, being within his city, are going to become gospel words of comfort to those who are repentant in the end of this chapter in the text that we're going mm-hmm. to look at tomorrow. Right here, though, I mean, well, on the one hand, as, as you said, there's no shame. So they don't really care that God is there at least at the moment, they are going to care when they see that it's going, this fact that God is there and watching and seeing this is going to become a a moment of judgment for them as in this particular text. But I think it is, I mean, the way you've talked about it really helps set the stage for the text that we have tomorrow and how that is going to be a a gospel promise from the Lord that he's in the midst of his people. And he's there to do that justice, which is to do ultimately justification, which comes to us Mm -hmm. by grace through faith. That's going to be emphasized in tomorrow's text. We have the judgment side of it primarily in today's text, Pastor Dandy. In verses six and seven, it sounds like now we actually hear from the Lord himself that he would be the I speaking here. What does the Lord say yeah. in these next couple of verses?
1: Yeah, I've cut off nations. Their battlements are ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me, you will accept correction, and then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt." Right? And so we, we just went through, right, um, in chapter two, God's oracles against the nations. Uh, but maybe even fresh in the memories of the people of Israel, um, if, you're, if you're thinking about this in the time of Zephaniah's prophecy, uh, or the people of Jerusalem, if you think about this in the time of Zephaniah's prophecy, is that, you know, what happened to the northern kingdom, right? Uh, what happened to the kingdom of Israel just uh, 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 you know, a handful of generations before them, um, uh, but, but that, that God had the Assyrians lay it to waste, right? What happens is God declares his judgment against uh, um, these other nations around the people of Israel. Uh, And so we have God kind of uh, acting um, in divine judgment against the nations um, with the hope that his own chosen people would see this and repent. You know, we have God say, surely they'll see this and fear me. Surely they'll see the power of my wrath. Um, And that their hearts would be cut to the quick. They'll hear my words um, and accept my correction so that their dwelling is not cut off according to all that he's appointed against them. But we see kind of the the tragic reality. And this really is the, the ultimate tragic reality of hardening of the heart to the word of God. Is that we don't take that correction. Uh, we come all the more eager to make our deeds corrupt, right? Um, it's, that, it's that when a person hardens themselves to God's word, um, what happens is that they continue to dive deeper and deeper into the thing that God's word would call them to repent from. Um, and so we, we see, uh, and God invites the Israelites to see that these these destructions of the cities and the nations around them as a call to repentance, Um and yet yet they don't view it that way.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean it's it's a very very tragic thing that that the people of God do not see how he is active to call them to repentance and and in fact become even more eager to, to dwell in evil and to to rebel against the Lord, it, it is a, a tragic thing. I mean, it's the same thing that was happening in Jeremiah's day, which is, I mean, that's Zephaniah's day as well. I mean, yeah. it, just that tragedy of seeing it over, it was just, it's heartbreaking. And, and to hear the Lord speak in this way, I mean, this is not the way he desires to speak from his heart, and yet he does so. In order to call his people to repentance, the fact that he is speaking yeah. in this way is still that sign that, yes, he is reaching out, calling his people back to himself, even if it means doing these things that he's talking about here. We got about five minutes, Pastor Dandy, and, and I think verse eight really helps to tie a lot of these threads together. Mm-hmm. As the Lord says, wait for me. So as, as we think about verse eight here with these last five minutes, you know, help us into the verse and then help us to see from that verse and, and this text as a whole, how this is pointing us to uh, Christ, our Savior.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so, um, and if I could back up for ten seconds here and just say, if you really read Zephaniah and and Jeremiah too, um, and and verse seven especially, you get this sense of longing from God, yeah. um, that he he desires the repentance of his people. He desires his people to draw near. Um, but then then in verse eight, um, we we see maybe a word to the faithful. Um, but then also a word to all of those in, in, in Jerusalem. It says, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger for the fire of my jealousy and all the earth shall be consumed. Right. Um, and so uh, I think you can really take this uh, uh, verse eight to to. Work on a couple of levels. I believe this passage is talking both about um, uh, uh, God's wrath against sinners on the last day, but um, also along with Luther, I think this this does lead into both uh, uh, thoughts about the passion and resurrection of Jesus. Um, so. As we we look at this and we look at this in terms of maybe the destruction of the city of Jerusalem uh, at the hands of Babylon, uh, we we have that reality that takes place. God's wrath does pour out on the city of Jerusalem and there is a remnant left um, that remains faithful and is taken off into exile. But then we think about this in terms of the indignation and the wrath of God being poured out on all nations and all kingdoms. Well, where does this take place? This takes place in in the cross of Christ. You know, it's a bit of a stretch, but Luther takes the words for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, where he says I rise up as a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. Right, that we remember that that Christ was uh, crucified for our transgressions and risen for our justification. That from that rising up, the wrath of the nations is accomplished and As you'll see tomorrow and the next session, uh, God creates for himself a a new people, and we're drawn into being that new people by the call of the gospel. right? Uh, But then also it works on the level of uh, this eschatological reality, this end times, this last day reality. Um, where maybe we think about this in terms of the sheep and the goats, right? Mm -hmm. That God does gather his church and uh, his sheep, and he says to them, you are mine, you are justified. Uh, But then he says to the goats, um, you are uh, in your sin. Um, You are separated from uh, my grace, and you are subjects of my wrath, right? Uh, And so we see that uh, this fire and jealousy of God, uh, this burning anger against sin, Um, uh, will be poured out on the last day uh, against um, uh, those who have hardened themselves to the word of the gospel. But then we also know that that wrath was poured out on Christ himself in his death and resurrection, and that there is this calling then to repent and believe in the gospel, Uh, Not to be hardened to God's call to repentance, but to rejoice in knowing that God indeed does seek to save sinners, that he calls sinners out from their sin. And he calls sinners to the joy of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, that Jesus bears this wrath. Jesus is risen for our justification um, uh, and that we, we have this life under him in his care and under his name.
0: Pastor Jacob Dandy is pastor at Zion Lutheran Church and School in Tarabella, California, helping us today with Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Pastor Dandy, thanks so much for being our guest today.
1: Oh, it's been a real pleasure.
0: I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. We are beginning a series on the book of Ezekiel next week. If you have any questions on the book of Ezekiel in advance, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send up to a 60-second message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.